You're listening to the Patrick E. McLean Podcast. This is A Year in Reading. So what did I read this year? Well, I'm all over the place, but I thought I'd take a moment to hit some of the highlights in no particular order, except for the first one, which is a book called A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. It's the best book I read this year. It's wonderful and wonderfully crafted. I can't say enough great things about it. It has one of the most beautiful and perfect metaphors involving a wine cellar. Uh, When I came up to it in the book, I literally put the book down and cursed out loud. It was so good. I couldn't believe how good it was, and I've thought about it for weeks. The story is set in 1922. It's about Count Alexander Rostov, an aristocrat who survives the Russian Revolution because he wrote a poem. So instead of being put against the wall and shot, he's sentenced to house arrest and ultimately labor in the Metropole, a grand hotel across the street from the Kremlin. This book does what great art should always do. It expands your experience of being alive. I don't think I've read a better book in the last five years, and I don't expect that I will in the next five. Here's a few excerpts. But as they came to the bend in the road where the Count would normally give a snap of the reins to speed the horses home, Helena would place a hand on his arm to signal that he should slow the team, for midnight had just arrived, and a mile behind them the bells of ascension had begun to swing, their chimes cascading over the frozen land in holy canticle. And in the pause between hymns, if one listened with care, above the pant of the horses, above the whistle of the wind, one could hear the bells of St. Michael's ten miles away and then the bells of St. Sophia's even farther afield, calling to one another like flocks of geese across a pond at dusk, the bells of ascension. I'll tell you what's convenient, he said after a moment, to sleep until noon and have someone bring your breakfast on a tray, to cancel an appointment at the very last minute, to keep a carriage waiting at the door of one party so that on a moment's notice it can whisk you away to another, to sidestep marriage in youth and put off having children altogether. These are the greatest of conveniences, Anushka, and at one time I had them all. But in the end, it has been the inconveniences that have mattered to me most. Anna Urbanova took the cigarette from the Count's fingers, dropped it in a water glass, and kissed him on the nose. Since the day I was born, Sophia, there was only one time when life needed me to be in a particular place at a particular time. And that was when your mother brought you to the lobby of the Metropole. And I would not accept the Tsarship of all the Russias in exchange for being in this hotel at that hour. To totally whipsaw things in another direction, I also read a novel this year called The Last Good Kiss by James Crumley. Here's the beginning. When I finally caught up with Abraham Traherne, He was drinking beer with an alcoholic bulldog named Fireball Roberts in a ramshackle joint just outside of Sonoma, California, drinking the heart right out of a fine spring afternoon. Traherne had been on his wandering binge for nearly three weeks, and the big man, dressed in rumpled khakis, looked like an old soldier after a long campaign, sipping slow beers to wash the taste of death out of his mouth. The dog slumped on the stool beside him like a tired little buddy, only raising his head occasionally for a taste of beer from a dirty ashtray set on the bar. Neither of them bothered to glance at me as I slipped onto a stool between the bulldog and the only other two customers in the place, two out-of-work shade tree mechanics who were discussing their lost unemployment checks, their latest DWI conviction, and the probable location of a 1957 timing chain. 
Their naughty faces and nasal accents belong to another time, another place. The Dust Bowl 30s in a rattletrap homemade Model T truck headed into the setting sun. As I sat down, they glanced at me with the narrow eyes of country people, looking me over carefully as if I were an abandoned wreck they planned to cannibalize for spare parts. I nodded to them blithely to let them know that I might be a wreck, but I hadn't been quite totaled yet. They returned my silent greetings with blank eyes and thoughtful nods that seemed to suggest that accidents could be arranged. I would say that Crumley is a guilty pleasure, but I don't feel guilty in the slightest. He's like Hunter S. Thompson and Raymond Chandler had a baby. And after I finished The Last Good Kiss, I plowed through two more of Crumley's books. No guilt, no regrets. I also read a book called The Story of the Stone by Barry Hughart. It's the middle book of the Chronicles of Master Lee and Number 10 Ox. These books aren't really like anything else. I have all three, read the first one, and will read the third one, but I don't want to guzzle them. They're set in a mythical China that never was, and they're wonderfully fantastic, very funny, and surprisingly poignant in places. They're also something of a cautionary tale for me. The book struggled to get traction because it's in a genre of its own. It's fantasy, but ancient imperial China as a setting rather than the Middle Ages. Master Li is ancient and the smartest man in China. Number 10 Ox is a narrator and is played as the big, dumb, strong guy. But there's a fair amount of unreliable narrator going on there. He's actually quite perceptive. It's big fun and great writing. Here's a couple of sloppily random snags. My surname is Li and my personal name is Cao. And there is a slight flaw in my character. Fable has strong shoulders that carry far more truth than fact can. Master Li turned bright red while he scorched the air with the 60 sequential sacrileges with which he had won the all-China freestyle blasphemy competition in Hangzhou three years in a row. The abbot used to say that the emotional health of a village depended upon having a man who everyone loved to hate, and heaven had blessed us with two of them. Next up is The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name by Brian C. Murarescu. God, I hope I pronounced that right. Odds are probably low. I'm reading this book right now. The book is an investigation into what is likely the oldest and most widespread religion, which is centered around a funerary rite with a hallucinogenic beer and later wine. I pounced on this after listening to an author interview with Andrew Sullivan. It's an intellectual detective story and quite good. The first thing that hooked me was that this is an explanation for the illusion mysteries, which is a ceremony that was a well-kept secret in the Greco-Roman world. People would make a pilgrimage to Eleusis, they would fast, they would drink this beer and have unbelievable visions and rave about the experiences, saying things like it's what made civilization possible. And they also said that it removed the fear of death, which was described with phrases like, if you die before you die, you will not die. The best guess is that this beer was brewed with ergotized wheat. But nobody knows for sure. But there are two things that are interesting about this. One, we can actually test old vessels and see that they have been drugged now and figure out what was in the beverages. And the second thing is that modern medical research is showing that a single dose of psychedelic mushroom cures depression and PTSD and things like that at a unbelievably high rate, like 75-80%, and it also takes away the fear of death in hospice patients. Essentially, this is inducing a religious experience with chemicals. And this is Johns Hopkins doing this, not some unwashed hippie with a YouTube channel. 
So there are real questions here about the early Christian Eucharist. Was it hallucinogenic and was it an extension of the Eleusian and Dionysian mysteries? But for me, the craziest thing in the book to wrap my head around has been Gobleki Tepe, which is the oldest known temple on record dated from 10,000 BC. It appears to have been a sacred brewery for hallucinogenic beer. And honestly, the hallucinogenic part is the least crazy part of that statement. The 10,000 BC is nuts. That's 6,000 years before settled agriculture. And the temple is constructed from giant slabs of stone in a way that we didn't think people could build back then. Insert ancient aliens nonsense if you must. But the crazy part about this find is that it reverses what I thought was the causality of civilization. It was always thought that first came agriculture, then came beer. But it seems that beer as a sacrament, predates civilization by thousands of years. The other crazy thing about this book is that the brewing of sacred potions appears to be exclusively the realm of women, old women, which appears to be the origin of our archetype of witches. Boil, toil, and trouble, anyone? And that this was stamped out as the underground Christ cult grew into the state religion of Rome. There's a lot going on in this book, and if anything I've just mentioned piques your curiosity, you should definitely check it out. I dipped into this after watching the musical on Disney+, Plus, a show which scarcely needs praise from me, but I have to say it's unbelievably fantastic and an amazing accomplishment on many, many levels. And so is the biography. Here's an excerpt from the book that seems uniquely appropriate to the current moment. This misfortune affects me less than others, he told Eliza Schuyler, because it is not in my temper to repine at evils that are past, but to endeavor to draw good out of them, and because I think our safety depends on a total change of system, and this change of system will only be produced by misfortune. I also read the Babaverse series by Dennis E. Taylor. We're part of a secret fraternity of authors with a middle initial of E. No, that's just making that up. Anyway, the series starts with We Are Legion, parentheses, We Are Bob. I listened to a bunch of these and I read uh, a couple too, so I don't have a bunch of quotes, but just read them all. They are lovely, humane, optimistic, funny, speculative fiction, and, and fairly hard sci-fi for being you know, enjoyable. Basically, a guy is turned into a von Neumann probe. He, he freezes himself to survive, and then uh, they, they grab his consciousness and make him into this device to explore the universe. So he becomes self-replicating, and as he goes, he makes copies of himself, fights off aliens, struggles to help save humanity at one point. It's tremendously positive and interesting without being trite or stupid. I mean, it's really, really great. And the audiobooks are some of the best I've heard. In fact, if I had to rank the best audiobooks I've ever heard, this one currently comes in third. Or these, I should say, come in third. Best performance would be Stephen Fry reading the complete works of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, of course, the stories uh, are great, but Fry is such a great actor who loves Holmes, and he puts everything he's got into this performance. I can't overstate how great that audio is. Uh, number two, and best ensemble performance, would be World War Z. Uh, that novel with the full cast was tremendous. If you have a car trip just get it. And third place is Ray Porter reading Dennis Taylor's Bobiverse books. I think they're great. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I also, I'd have to throw in anything that, uh, anything that Neil Gaiman, uh, wrote and reads himself. He's, he's a tremendous, tremendous narrator. So I don't know, shake them all up in some kind of order, but those, those are my top ones right now for audiobooks. 
I reread The Jugger by Richard Stark. Donald Westlake is his real name. Stark was Donald Westlake's pen name. And he always said that this was the worst book of his Parker novels, but there's a moment in this one that's just shockingly powerful. I won't ruin it, but Westlake is a master writer for a host of reasons. He's a writer's writer, and I learn by studying how he plots things and his description, just everything. But here, here's a little bit of his description. Um, Friedman led the way to his office. He was short and barrel-shaped and walked as though he'd do better if he rolled instead. His face was made of silly putty, plus horn-rimmed glasses. The Road to Character by David Brooks was another book I read. This book is really a compilation of short biographies of people of great character and how they developed themselves. It's quite good. I dug into it as research on virtues, and the book paid for itself in the introduction, which I'm just going to read you part of. The author, David Brooks, really, really bit off a lot, probably just about as much as anybody could chew. And one of the dangers of a book like this is that you can become preachy, and he just doesn't. And he has this great little bit at the end of the introduction, which goes like this. I wrote this book, not sure I could follow the road to character, but I wanted at least to know what the road looks like and how other people have trodden it. The plan of this book is simple. In the next chapter, I will describe an older moral ecology. It was a cultural and intellectual tradition, the crooked timber tradition, that emphasized our own brokenness. It was a tradition that demanded humility in the face of our own limitations. But it was also a tradition that held that each of us has the power to confront our own weaknesses, tackle our own sins, and that in the course of this confrontation with ourselves, we build character. My general belief is that we have accidentally left this moral tradition behind. Over the last decades, we've lost this language, this way of organizing life. We're not bad, but we're morally inarticulate. We're not more selfish or venial than people in other times, but we've lost the understanding of how character is built. And in this book, I also found this wonderful quote from St. Augustine, which is, How small of all that human hearts endure, that part which laws and kings can cause or cure. This year, I also dipped back into Aristotle's politics and ethics. I first read Aristotle's ethics in college for a class on classical political philosophy, and I jumped back in as research for thinking about virtue. There's an idea that reading old books is pretentious or stuffy or dull, and that's not my experience at all. The reason to read books like this, even when they get a little hard, is because they are incredibly useful. The Greeks, and Aristotle in particular, laid some of the foundation stones of civilization, or at least drew up the attack plan for what G.K. Chesterton calls the whole courageous raid which we call civilization. I like that metaphor because it suggests heroism, fragility, and glory in what reveals itself to be the not-so-simple work of civilizing oneself and others. What I did not expect to find was this gem from the commentary. Aristotle's attention here is directed chiefly towards the phenomenon of incontinence, a weakness of will or imperfect self-control. This condition was, to the Greeks, a matter of only too frequent experience, but it appeared to them particularly difficult to understand. How can a man know what is good or best for him and yet chronically fail to act upon his knowledge? Socrates was driven to the paradox of denying the possibility, but the facts are too strong for him. Knowledge of the right rule may be present, nay, the rightfulness of its authority may be acknowledged, and yet time after time it may be disobeyed. The will may be good and yet overmastered by the force of desire, so that the act done is contrary to the agent's will. This underscores a naivete of classical political thought. 
And this is not to say that the ancients were naive in any way. This is just a mistake. Because I think I could make a really good case that wrestling with yourself about doing what you know to be good is the defining problem here at the beginning of the 21st century. I also read The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forrester. I have loved the Horatio Hornblower novel since I was, I don't know, maybe 12. But when I saw a preview of the movie Greyhound, I became aware that C.S. Forrester had written the book the movie was based on about the commander of a convoy to Britain in the early days of World War II. Tom Hanks got this movie made. He wrote the screenplay, he stars in it, and that's a clue for you. Not that the movie, I mean, it might be great, but I haven't seen it. Not that the movie is good, but that the source material is excellent, because somebody expended career capital to get it made. This is a tremendous book. The psychological tension and strain of commanded combat is represented here in a way I've never read before. I don't know how you could render that psychological tension into a film and by that, I'm saying that the book does what only books can do, and it does it very, very well. It's well-crafted and relentless that doesn't lend itself to punchy quotes, and it made a huge impression on me. Fathers and Sons by Ivan Turgenev I just finished this one, and I need more time to think about it. I read it primarily because a, another writer I greatly admire is giving a lecture on it, so I wanted to be adequately armed to listen to that. A lot of the book is concerned with what happens when you don't believe anything, if it's even possible not to believe anything. For me, Russian novels manage to be profoundly psychological and spiritual, and I can't ingest them quickly. But in it, I found this gem of a line. Death is an old joke, but it comes fresh to everyone. Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. I have read embarrassingly little Vonnegut. I read Harrison Bergeron in school, and its prescience has terrified me ever since. Vonnegut's amazing, and I'm going to work my way through many more of his books. But this was my start. And here's a taste. Like so many Americans, she was trying to construct a life that made sense from things she found in gift shops. Inventing the Individual, The Origins of Western Liberalism by Larry Seedentrop. The biggest problem with reading and not being familiar with history is that you can easily be fooled into thinking that the way things are now are kind of the way things have always been. And even highly educated and intelligent people can fall into this trap and become provincial in time. This book is a study of how the individual became the unit of social organization in the West. It's fascinating. Here's an excerpt from the prologue. But do these intuitions mean that the West can still be defined in terms of shared beliefs? It can offer beliefs usually described as liberal, but here we immediately encounter a problem. For in the eyes of Islamic fundamentalists, and indeed in the eyes of not a few in the West, liberalism has come to stand for non-belief, for indifference and permissiveness, if not for decadence. And why is that? And is the charge justified? This book is an attempt to find out. Its argument rests on two assumptions. The first is that if we are to understand the relationships between beliefs and social institutions, that is to understand ourselves, then we have to take a very long view. Deep moral changes, changes in belief, can take centuries to begin to modify social institutions. It is folly to expect popular habits and attitudes to change overnight. The second assumption is that beliefs are nonetheless of primary importance an assumption once far more widely held than it is today. In the 19th century, there was a prolonged contest between the idealist and materialist views of historical change. 
with the latter holding that social order rests not so much on shared belief, but on technology, economic interdependence, and an advanced social division of labor. Even the declining appeal of Marxism in the latter 20th century did not discredit that view. Rather, in a strange afterlife, Marxism infiltrated liberal thinking, creating a further temptation to downgrade the role of beliefs. That temptation became all the greater because of the unprecedented prosperity enjoyed by the West after the Second World War. We have come to worship at the Shrine of Economic Growth. This is another book that's going to take a long time to digest and think about, and is full of interesting insights to, like, for example, the idea that maybe the earliest cradle of democracy after Athens, what started to move things in that way again, was the organization of people in monasteries. And also the revelation that the ancient world, uh, what we would think of as a unit of organization, would have been the family and the head of the family, the, the pater familias in the Roman sense, right? Head of the household was the only person in the family who had an independent existence, that religion was primarily mediated by the head of the household. And you couldn't quite think of individuals in the sense that we do now, or at least people in those societies didn't. There's a lot in it. Um, if that any of that interests you, it will reward you greatly for reading it. So I read The Peloponnesian War by Robert Kagan and um, Thucydides' Peloponnesian War. And I got a confession. Every time I say Peloponnesian War, I've got this stupid gag in my head, which is Pelops-Ponesian War, like a guy named Pelops decided to put on a war for entertainment. No idea why I can't get rid of that joke, but this seems to happen with Greek words. Um, I have a joke about Sophocles as well. Mikey, why are you always writing like that? You should be out playing ball. I've got a paper due on Sophocles. Sophocles? How about you try Sophocles? He says as he grabs at his crotch. I've read Thucydides before. It's hard, but it's worth it. Kagan wrote a four-volume masterwork on the history of the war for scholars. Then he distilled it down into this book for... Um, regular people. I read both these books um, partially because it's fascinating subject matter. Thucydides is really great. And partially as a research project for something I can't really talk about while it's in the works because I, I fear it will, it will kill the idea. Anyway, if you don't know anything about the Peloponnesian War, it was the first world war and it was very fascinating. So it was Athens, technologically advanced Athens with their fleet against Sparta, which didn't have a fleet. And Probably the best quote I can think of from there right now is Pericles. So um, Athens has, has started this war. It's all the city-states are lining up, and it's Sparta and their allies on one side, and Athens and their allies on the other side, and it doesn't go according to plan. It gets harder and more expensive than the ancient Athenians realized it would be, and they all uh, they start rebelling and whining and complaining, and Pericles gives this speech. Uh, this is what Thucydides does well. He captures these speeches. He was there for them, so he recreates them. I don't think it's exactly stenographic, but it's really great. And Pericles uh, says, You have a tyranny over the world. The only thing more dangerous than having it is letting it go. So he gets them all back in a line, and they're all following the plan, and the, the Spartans invade invade Attica, right? Evade, evade uh, the land around Athens, and they withdraw everybody back into the city. And the plan is, well, they can't get through our big walls and they can't cut off the supply of food from the sea. So we'll just all pile in the city. And when that happens, a plague strikes Athens as the Spartans are burning the field and a bunch of people die 
including Pericles, and then they're sort of lost and adrift at sea. They don't have they don't have a leader, so it all starts to get really weird. There's lots and lots of great stuff in there. So, if uh, you know if I haven't piqued your interest in history up to this point in this little podcast, uh, this is another good one. I read uh, Piranesi by Susanna Clark. I liked it. It's gorgeously written, but it didn't have the impact on me that Dr. Strange and Mr. Norell did. I mean, I loved that book. It's one of the few books I've ever read that have made me say, if magic exists, uh, it would be exactly like that. Dr. Strange and Mr. Norell. Dr. Strange and Mr. Norell is set in an alternate history in the Napoleonic era where uh, magic existed and it's fallen into disuse and some people sort of find out about it again. My favorite part of that book is, is this exchange. Can a magician kill a man by magic? Lord Wellington asks Strange. Strange frowned. He seemed to dislike the question. I suppose a magician might, he admitted. But a gentleman never could. The Toymakers by Robert Dinsdale. I've only read half this book. It's a Christmas book about a magical toy store in the heart of London, right before World War I. In the spring, I started reading it on the recommendation of a friend, and I have decided to save the rest of it for the week of Christmas. It's marvelous magical realism, and if you want a Christmas book, I think this is the one. 16 Ways to Defend a Walled City by K.J. Parker This is the blurb for the book. A siege is approaching, and the city has little time to prepare. The people have no food and no weapons, and the enemy has sworn to slaughter them all. To save the city will take a miracle, but what it has is Orhan. A colonel of engineers, Orhan has far more experience with bridge building than battles, is a cheat and a liar, and has a serious problem with authority. He is, in other words, perfect for the job. What nothing on the outside of this book will tell you is that it's a book about the tensions of civilization, racism, oppression, and ideology. Orhan is part of a downtrodden minority in the book, yet it falls to him to save the city and the empire, the same empire that crushes everybody who's not in the empire beneath its cruel, sandaled heel. There's a lot in this book. Orhan is also a magnificent narrator, and this book is funny, insightful, and profound. Here's a few clips. A wise man once said, the difference between luck and a wheelbarrow is, luck doesn't work if you push it. Beautiful people, though, I struggle with. Unless you keep your eyes shut or look the other way, you can't help but have an awful fact ground into you, like the wheel of a heavy wagon running over your neck, that here is someone divided from you by a vast, unbridgeable gap, and they've done absolutely nothing to deserve it. Ogus's wife, her name was Shilgaita, was that level of beauty. I won't even try to describe her because they don't make words that could take the strain. You felt ashamed to look at her. The way I see it, the truth is just barren moorland, all useless bog and heather. It's only when you break it up and turn it over with a plowshare of the good lie that you can screw a livelihood out of it. Isn't that what humans do? They take a dead landscape and reshape it into what they need and want and can use. I've never hesitated to adapt the world to suit me when I can get away with it. That's how the world changes. It's either so quick we never know what hit us or so gradual that we don't notice. It's only later, when books are written and scholars decide what mattered and what didn't, that red lines are drawn. Before this point, the world was this way. After this point, everything was different. You could be there and not have a clue. You could be asleep or looking the other way, having a quiet shit or screwing in an alley, and an unseen pen draws a line. Here the empire ended. Here the Dark Ages began. 
This year, I read a lot of Con Eagleton. He's one of the authors of The Dangerous Books for Boys, but he also writes magnificent historical fiction. And for my money, he makes Bernard Cornwall look like a chump. No, no, I'm kidding. Cornwall's excellent too, but but I like Eagleton better, honestly. This year, I read the Empire series about Julius Caesar. Last year, I read his Genghis Khan series. Both were excellent, both in a page-turning, thrilling, gore and violence, argh, adventure kind of way. And also as writing, especially the first two books of the Caesar series, some very powerful human moments. And he writes women very well, it seems. He's tremendously talented and very diligent with the history. I also read The Falcon of Sparta, which is his retelling of Xenophon's Anabasis. The story is one of the greatest adventure stories of all time. Xenophon goes with 10,000 hoplite mercenaries to fight for Cyrus the Younger in Persia, who has has attempted to steal the throne of Persia, the entire Persian Empire, from his brother, but he gets killed and his army is defeated. All except for the 10,000 Greek mercenaries. See, they were on the other side of the hill from Cyrus's army because they had successfully charged and they were busy routing the rest of the Persians. When they find out Cyrus is dead, they have this huge problem. They have to get back home. So this is the story about how they fought and politicked their way back home to Greece over thousands and thousands of miles. Or how they made their way back home to Coney Island. Because not only is Xenophon's Anabasis a true story, it's also the inspiration and plot of Walter Hill's classic 1977 film, The Warriors. If you need some historical fiction, pick up some Eagledon. He's a master, and it's just seriously fun to say his last name. Eagledon, Eagledon, Eagledon. Boswell's Life of Johnson. I'm reading this bit by bit. My sense is that the biography has lasted better than anything Johnson wrote when he was alive, which is a bit crazy because, except for his biography of Johnson, it seems that Boswell might have been an annoying drunken hanger-on of a jackass who never did anything else right in his life. Samuel Johnson came from crushing poverty and hardship and pretty much single-handedly compiled the first dictionary of the English language. Pretty much single-handedly compiled the first dictionary of the English language. In the preface of that dictionary, he wrote, It is the fate of those who toil at lower employments of life to be rather driven by the fear of evil than attracted by the prospect of good, to be exposed to censure without hope of praise, to be disgraced by miscarriage or punished for neglect where success would have been without applause and diligence without reward. Among these unhappy mortals is the writer of dictionaries, whom mankind have considered not as the pupil but the slave of science, the pioneer of literature, doomed only to remove rubbish and clear obstructions from the path of learning and genius, who press forward to conquest and glory without bestowing a smile on the humble drudge that facilitates their progress. Every other author may aspire to praise, the lexiographer may only hope to escape reproach, and even this negative recompense has been granted to a very few. Johnson was also a prodigiously fast writer and reader. Boswell says this of him. Johnson knew more books than any man alive. He had a peculiar facility in seizing at once what was valuable in any book, without submitting to the labor of perusing it from beginning to end. He had, from the irritability of his constitution at all times, an impatience and hurry when either he read or wrote. Which makes me feel better about the way I sometimes raid nonfiction books rather than read them. Or maybe the way I render them, like one boils scraps of meat to render the useful fats out of them. I'm not going to take the time to find the precise metaphor. Whatever it is, it isn't pretty, it's messy, and no thing I'd want my children to watch. I just try to rip the guts right out of the book. And the fact that Johnson did it too makes me feel a little better. 
I also read The Border by Don Winslow. It's good, but honestly, not his best. I would suggest The Power of the Dog, the first book in that Border trilogy. I mean, don't get me wrong, I I enjoyed The Border, but reading The Power of the Dog and its sequel, The Cartel, was an experience like I've never had before. Winslow knows the sordid ins and outs of the drug war like few others and gets so much out of it as a writer. I am personally against the prohibition of drugs on moral grounds. And these books underscore why. In addition to being electrifying thrillers, these books help make the human cost of our price supports for drugs very real. If cocaine wasn't expensive in the U.S., people wouldn't kill themselves for it in Juarez and Colombia. Pablo Escobar blew up an airliner and bombed the Colombian Supreme Court. That's on him, but it's also on us. But don't let my speechify and put you off. The books are great thrillers. If you like Narcos, you'll love these. The Three-Body Problem by Liu Shixin. Absolutely no chance I pronounced that name right. Here's the Amazon blurb. Set against the backdrop of China's cultural revolution, a secret military project sends signals into space to establish contact with aliens. An alien civilization on the brink of destruction captures the signal and plans to invade Earth. Meanwhile, on Earth, different camps start forming, planning to either welcome the superior beings and help them take over a world seen as corrupt or to fight against the invasion. The result is a science fiction masterpiece of enormous scope and vision. For me, this is a triple winner of a great book for three reasons. One, it's great hard sci-fi. Two, it's great psychological fiction. Not only is the science good, but the insights into people and society are great as well. And three, it's Chinese science fiction. So you really get a glimpse into another culture. Having been to a few conventions and having met a number of sci-fi and fantasy authors, it can be a little dismal how conventional many of them are. There is a tendency towards groupthink in what they call the, quote, field of writing speculative fiction. And of course, a lot of internal strife. Who's the good guys? Who's the bad guys? I don't pretend to know. But you can get a lot of sameness in fiction when they have the same worldview and they spend a lot of the same time in the same rooms talking about the same things in the same way. This book wasn't like that at all for me. It was brilliant and refreshing. And that's about it. Throw in other scattered reading in the Bible, Shakespeare, history, economics, and poetry, and it's a year well spent. Of course, I wish I had a chance to read more, but, you know, there was real life to live as well. Occasionally put out a podcast episode. If anybody has a suggestion of something I should read next year, just put it in the comments. I have a, I have a problem with buying books. Please enable me.